And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is an on-location episode from the Bravin Lee Gallery. Enjoy. Podcasting. There you go. In a gallery, in, in a New York City Chelsea gallery. Yeah. Can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Richard Pasquarelli. I'm a visual artist. I live in New York City and I have my studio in uh, the South Bronx. How long have you been practicing? Oh boy. Um, I would say seriously since I got out of college and I graduated from Syracuse University in 1990. That's a long time. It is a long time. In 1990, I was in the third grade. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Cool. It was a horrible time. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, third grade's horrible. I think middle school's worse, though. Oh. Yeah. I had to, in middle school, I had to homeschool in the seventh grade because the sixth grade was such a disaster. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, uh... I've heard, too, that this, that same middle school, it's still equally as bad as it was then. As oh, now. really? Where was that? It's King Middle School in Portland, Maine. Portland, wow. Yeah, my, uh, my sister ended up moving her whole family to another school district to avoid it. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. sad, actually. You know? Yeah. It's tough. It I was, my, my sister's a school teacher. She's great. She's one of those teachers that everybody wants their kid to be in her class. You know, and she's she's great. I've talked to her about it. She teaches lessons in multiple ways, you know, because some kids are audio, audible or audio listeners or uh, learners and some are visual learners. And so she teaches sometimes she says her lesson four different ways, you know, and I think that that's incredible to be, have a teacher like that. You know, like for me, when I was a kid, any teacher that wrote on the board that I would do very well in their class. Because when I would take the tests, I would remember the writing on the board. And then I could, but if the teacher was just, you know, sat at their desk and lectured, boy, it was like five times harder for me in those classes. Yeah, that sounds like a good teacher. Yeah. Uh, my sister's a teacher as well. Oh, really? And, um, Elementary she, as well? Elementary the, uh, school? Preschool. Okay, little, little. But um, her youngest son, is a writer. Mm. He's in middle school right now. 
when he was in elementary school, mm-hmm. he had a he was like the only student in the school to have a free pass to leave class whenever he wanted if he felt the need to write. Wow, that's how cool his school. That's was. awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, what he, sort of stuff does he write? He writes stories, poetry, anything, wow. um, and he's very good. He invents words, mm. and he's so good at creating words that Amazing. you know what they mean, you know what his intent is, yeah. and they're rooted in our understanding of language, how language mm. works, and I've used one of his made-up words in my latest What's the word? novel. It's called Shadowfold. Yeah, what does it, what does it represent? And it's describing uh, the vibe of a room. Oh, how cool. Yeah, a shadow fall room. Wow. That is cool. I'm going to use that. Yeah, that's like, you know, um, the philosopher Heidegger had to come up with words for in order to describe um, his his, um, philosophy because he found that the, the... He's talking, you know, about phenomenology, which is the study of, you know, the way we come to perceive our reality. And so there were words... Every word would have sort of its attached meaning, and so he was finding that he needed to actually come up with new words. So it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm an advocate for writers doing that. I mm-hmm. feel like if um, we, if a visual artist could try to find new ways to frame something, or new ways, or new even new ways to mix colors, certainly mm-hmm. somebody who works with language can come up with new words. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's that's, something that's definitely missing in, in the creative side of, uh, of like academia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was funny because my daughter, my daughter's 23 and I have a son who's 25, but when she was in school, um, I think she was in middle school and, and they were doing a, a lesson on 12 Angry Men, you know, the play, and each student was supposed to write dialogue or something uh, an assignment where it was supposed to be in the voice of the one of the people that they were given that was on the jury and so she had she was given the i forget what the character's name is but he's sort of the the you know sports enthusiast he was way into the, in baseball and stuff and so she wanted in her essay <laughs> i forget the word maybe she oh she used the word stunad you know like don't be a stunad <laughs> sort of italian american like lingo and the teacher made her strike it from the essay and i thought to myself you know what that's because it wasn't a real word and i thought that I thought her putting that word in was was really connecting with the character. You know what I mean? And so I was sort of astounded that the teacher was making her take that word out. Yeah, I find that um, that's an alarming amount of people on the writing community. On all the social media I'm on, I'm a part of the writing community. Yes. And they're more interested in what they perceive as correct Mm-hmm. versus inventive and and I love the street language it's one of the reasons Bukowski is one of my favorite authors uh-huh. is his he, he he talks about or he he's dead now so he talked about yeah. uh, how he would get these manuscripts back from publishers where it's so heavily edited that it loses its character its yeah. spirit because they don't understand the beauty of the street language that's right it's the nice thing about painting is you know nobody can edit it but you <laughs> You know, yeah. and uh, mark it up, so to speak. Well, that is an interesting uh, 
I haven't looked at it that way before, but it makes sense. Like, you're not going to come into a gallery and they're not going to tell you to, well, maybe you should try different colors here. Yeah. I've never heard of that happening. Well, I mean, I guess they could. I guess that could be criticism in a way, you know. It's yeah. so subjective, too, though. So for every, every uh, somebody once told me, there's no bad criticism. Like, all criticism is good, good because it's, you're, you're inciting somebody to write something. So even if it's bad, you've, you've provoked them in some way to want to write about it. So I like that philosophy, you know? When we were setting up, you were talking about perfection. I would like to go back into that because... Sure. Yeah, so this, so this work in, this, in the show, um, so the show is called As It Should Be. Yeah. And it's focusing on two uh, bodies of work that I've been making over the last couple of years. So the piece that's behind me it's called Self-Portrait Number 1, and it's 60 individual paintings, which are uh, made with oil paint on mylar, which is then adhered to a steel plate. And then in the wall are magnets that I've recessed, flushed to the, to the front of the wall. And each panel has um, four magnets. So there are 240 magnets behind that holding it up. But, and it's funny because even at the opening, when people were standing here in person, they asked me how I painted it on the wall. And I thought, you know, this is, uh, I, this is one of the difficulties is I've been finding with all of this new work is how to communicate it visually, like through photography on my website, whatever. Um, you know, and I think because of the way it's designed or painted, it, where it looks like it's recessed into the wall, when people see a photograph of it, they actually think it's a real bookcase. Um, so it's, which is, which is good because I do want to toy with those ideas of how we perceive our reality and, and the, and the way our minds interact with reality, um, and our surroundings. And then the other body of work is a series that I call my perfection series. And, um, that comes out of all of the work actually comes out of my own, um, compulsion for, uh, perfection and order, right? So I'm one of those people who is constantly making things straight, aligning things, you know, everything has its set place in my home, in my studio. Um, my studio is pristine, almost like a, like a lab is how I think about it, you know? So when I get in there, I have no, no distractions and I can get to work and um, be very serious about it. But anyway, so the, the, the compulsive behavior started getting to a point where my kids said to me, you know, Dad, we can't live this way anymore. This is too difficult, right? And they, they were teenagers. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, they're so right. Like, you're right. And then I thought, well, why do I do this? Like, why do I feel compelled to always do this? So I started doing research into it and then reading books on um, psychology, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, which then led me into other types of of psychological behaviors in relation to objects like hoarding disorder and um, but I'm also interested in philosophy and phenomenology specifically and also Eastern philosophy I'm, I'm very into Buddhism and these ideas of attachments and how we how we define ourselves through our things and all of that and um, so I started doing a lot of research into that and then as I was doing the research just ideas would would pop into my, my, my brain, you know, I'd have pictures of things. So I started making sketches and then I started working, making work about it. Is, do you think, do you think perfection is possible in our universe? 
No. And I think that's the Buddhist thing in me is that, you know, one of the things that they talk about it is, is suffering and where how uh, suffering comes from different things, you know, whether it's desire or sort of the hedonic treadmill, but also how things are always in a state of change. And the sooner you can accept that everything is in a state of change, the sooner you will find, you know, peace and, and you can, um, you know, reduce your suffering. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but uh, I think that for me, making this work, you know, because like I said, in my home environment, there were too many people who were always touching things, right? So they were always being rearranged and moved and... Um, and, but, you know, I have this picture in my mind, you know, I had, I had these candles on a table in our living room and I would always keep them spaced about um, six inches apart. And one day I came home and somebody had pushed them together into groups of two. And although it was a nice configuration, it wasn't the one that I want, wanted, the one that felt comfortable for me. So I immediately went over and I separated them out. And the minute I separated those two candles, the space between the candles, the six inches, became almost like solid. Like I, I saw it as a thing, right? It wasn't negative space, it was like a solid thing, it just was invisible. And, and, then I, and that inspired me and I thought, oh, you know, wow, what, what the measurement of that, of that space. So I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Saul Lewitt's work. I don't know, do you know Saul Lewitt? So Saul Lewitt is a more conceptual artist, and he, he would, when you, when you buy a Saul Lewitt, you basically are getting a set of directions um, to create a, to paint a wall mural, right? So for example, he might say, okay, make a point this high off the floor, this far from the end of the wall, and then from that point, draw a six-inch line, and then from that line, draw you know, four four-inch lines or whatever, and it keeps going and going and going until you've completed the whole wall. And I always loved that kind of thinking, um, that more conceptual thinking, but you know, I'm a, more of a representational painter, and so I could never figure out how to get that kind of conceptual thing into my work. But when I saw those, when I separated those candles and I saw that measurement, I thought, you know what, that's, that's what it is. And, I, and, I, and so I decided to make paintings that are based on diagrams, installation diagrams, that show the perfection that I see in my mind of the, the exact spacing that these objects need to be from one another, from, even from within the surroundings around them. So with that, this series of paintings here that are sort of my perfection paintings, these are actually based on other people's environments as well. But what I'm doing is I'm um, sort of recreating an environment. And so when you buy the painting, you actually get instructions that tell you how large a rectangle to paint on the wall. And then, within the, and then it shows you all the dimensions and spacing for hanging the, the paintings within that rectangle. And that, that painting, the, originally I was going to just do it as a traditional two-dimensional painting on canvas. But I was thinking about the way we think about objects in space, right? So for example, if you have a wall that's 20 feet long, blank wall, let's say, and you take four things and you hang them on that wall, automatically your mind groups them. But there's absolutely nothing other than your mind that's creating that grouping. 
And I thought, oh, that's so interesting, the way our mind creates an imaginary boundary. And so these rectangles that are painted on the wall are sort of representing that imaginary boundary that I, that's in my mind, and then the, the forms within that. And so that, so yeah, so now all about back, to come back to perfection, yes, no, I can't get it in life, right? Um, but because things move, people touch things, whatever it is, but here, through the art, I feel like I can actually make it perfect, right? And so it sort of um, makes me feel like, well, because also because nobody's going to touch it because it's art, you know? And, uh, and, it, and it's very satisfying to make these works and then hang them on the wall and space everything and make it level and straight. And then there's a sense of relief that comes from that. Yeah, I, well, I like the idea, too, of um, <clears throat> you're... you're, you're pushing people to think about the space that it's in as well. But that reminds me oh, of yeah. sort of this, this idea. I don't know if you've been, you probably have been to that. There's a museum up at Beacon where... Every, D, D Beacon. D Beacon, where uh -huh. everything's designed to bring attention to the space. Yes, right. Uh, so that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, and you know, and you, you, the thing about that, and I think that's why I got interested in phenomenology and learning more about that was because, you know... Um, our perception of reality, you know. Um, years ago, somebody said to me, oh, yeah, it's kind of like a loose ab abstraction of Heidegger's thinking about, you know, when you leave your kitchen, is it still there? Like, does it just de dematerialize? And when you go back to the kitchen, does it rematerialize? And um, that kind of abstract thinking, I thought, just, you know, the way we perceive our reality is so... Um, Interesting, And I loved the idea that he was th talking about, you know, how all these philosophers before him were sort of, you know, um, standing outside of reality and describing it as though they were outside of it. And, and he comes along and he's like, wait a minute, you can't divorce yourself from the model. You are in the model. <laughs> and, um, and so I think, you know, to me, uh, it's very interesting because I think that you know, I'm a big believer in our minds create our reality, right? Like, I think the thoughts that you think actually affect the things oh, that occur in your life. Fucking and I don't just mean on a psychological level. I mean, like, really in, in the way things materialize in your life. And I think about um, matter in that way. You know, like, we perceive ourselves to be separate from our environment, right? But everything is made up of the same matter. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we might perceive, we, we think that we're actually, you know, disconnected from it, but, you know, there's a, uh, um, uh, I think she's an astrophysicist, Lisa Randall is her name, who's one of the people, professor, she's a professor, I don't know, she's probably a doctor, um, but she's talking about dark matter and had this theory about, you know, um, she says that, you know, I think it's 78% of all matter is dark matter. And that if she could rename dark matter, she would just call it translucent matter, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are perceiving our reality based on 22% of matter, the, the matter we can see, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone's so definite about, oh, this is reality, right? And, and it's all invisible. And so she had this theory about how if, you know, then they started talking about dark matter and how it performs and, you know, she said, well, if it acts like regular matter, right, if it has the same traits and all of that, 
then if we look at the Milky Way and the, the, the shape of the Milky Way and the way it, it, it moves and all that, there's this asteroid belt. And if dark matter acted, you know, I'm really, you know, summarizing this, but the essence is that if it acted the same way as regular matter, then, you know, every 60 million years, our planet would hit this orbit of this asteroid belt and we would see evidence of that, those asteroids hitting Earth you know, in our geology. And so they started to dig down, and sure enough, every 60 million years. So that catapulted her theory into, I guess, peer reviews and all of that. But, you know, so that idea of, like, perceiving our reality um, based on just what we see, you know, I'm thinking about what we don't see and, and, our, and our mental relationship. Like, I sort of describe the work as... Um, its goal is sort of to make visible the relationships between our minds and our physical surroundings. Right? You, have you ever read up on, uh, and I'm sure you have, but have you ever read up on uh, the, there's a science experiment called the double slit experiment? Oh yeah, totally. Oh, I love that one. I do too, you know? And the, and the observer effect and, and all of that, you know? And I think that they're always, you know, there's also the entanglement Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm fat and those things, you know, all of these things. Um, I think there's so much that we don't understand. Yeah. And I and I and I love the idea of exploring all of these concepts. You know, well, I, I you know, one of the, the terms that I use in my work, uh, in my film work, and I've been saying it more and more on this podcast uh, this year, especially because I, I started delving into the whole UFO phenomenon in January. Uh, and was that after that the the, the New York Times footage of the Tic Tac UFO that oh, they yeah. released? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, so it's not crazy anymore. It's time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, there's this term I use, and it's and, and I've used it in my films as well. It's called reality proper. And okay. so one of the things I, I I firmly am sure of, we're not experiencing reality proper. Mm -hmm. We're only seeing like a very small fraction of yeah. what's here. Right. Like what's in this room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, when you talk about how you could see an object as space, that's immediately what I come up with. I'm like, you're seeing through the facade. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and then how do I make art about that? So a lot of these concepts are, are extremely difficult to sort of materialize in art. So I thought, you know, I'm going to just start with basics like 101, you know, and show the, those relationships that we can clearly understand just, you know, everyday people can get, you know. So between the, the organizational OCD stuff and then there's the flip side of the hoarding. So these are clear relationships where it's like mind and matter and those two are related, right? So I want to get it to the double slit level, <laughs> but I don't know how, you know? And, but, and so I leave it to the art to do that. I just make and I think that over time the art will lead me to where I can start to make works that are telling that story. But I well, don't know how yet. It, no, I'm just like shooting the shit here. But mm -hmm. if if the nature of the double slit is once observed, it chooses a state. Mm -hmm. How do you translate that to to some to a work of art? That's an interesting concept. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, 
I mean, I think in a way, a little bit, these works, the ones that are the, the relief paintings installed in the thing, are kind of doing that a little bit because your mind, when you look at the piece from straight on, and this is probably why I have a difficult time representing it in a photograph on my website or whatever, when people look at it straight on, they just think it's a regular painting, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and then when you step to the side, you start realizing that all of these things are actually three-dimensional and relief. There's an artist, do you know the artist um, Rachel White Red? She's a British artist, and she casts um, the negative space of things, right? So, for example, she, I think she took these bookcases. Uh, she's also done it with chairs, where she'll fill the bookcase with its books and everything in it with concrete and let the concrete set and then remove the books and the bookcases, and so then you have a solid form from the negative space. And I love that because she's showing you, she's making visible what's invisible, and obviously some of the shapes have really beautiful formal aspects to it, like when she casts under a chair and you remove the legs, you have these sort of indentations into this solid cube that was under the chair. And so formally they're really beautiful and interesting. But I thought about, so she's making something that's invisible, visible. And I was thinking about how we take for granted our environments, right? Because we see things, we see light switches, we see pieces of papers, we see you know coat racks or whatever it is, um, all the time. But one thing, when my kids were little, really little, I remember how you know you give them something, an object, and it was the first time they'd seen it, and the way that their face would just like light up with wonder at this thing, like the physical that, that there's this thing, right? And I thought, you know, how can I, how can I do that? So I started thinking about that also in relation to this work, about reminding you, or actually, I should say, representing the things you take for granted in a way that makes it anew, you know? Like, so you look at this and you say, you know, because they're kind of reduced and simple um, in, their, in the, the information I'm giving in the painting, but it, it's an attempt for you to look at something kind of that you've seen a thousand times and see it as a new as uh, uh, something you've never seen before you know mm -hmm. um, so that's also and then that comes into this play of reality and the way we perceive our reality and and all of that what's 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 the uh, average timeline for you between the time you you, you start creating uh, a project to the time you're actually setting it up in a gallery? Uh, well, the piece, the bookcase painting, that took about a year to paint. And it was because I didn't, I couldn't, I mean, in the beginning I worked on it every day for months, right? But then it just was such a demanding work that I couldn't, I couldn't do it every day. So I space, started space, putting in space and working on other work as well. So that's why it took that long. I think if I had worked on it, continuously every day, um, day in and day out, it probably would have taken maybe four or five months to make. But, you know, uh, so that piece took a very long time. So I started that one in 2018 and completed it in 2019. And then the, the, the relief paintings over here, the Perfection series, those I started when I was in a residency in Chicago called the Ragdale Foundation. And that was in 
February of 2020. <laughs> oh, wow. Right before, so I was happy to have that whole month there. And then when I got back to my studio after, you know, the whole lockdown and all of that, um, then I started working back on those. Um, and uh, so I finished those all in 2021. Um, and then it's a matter of, you know, the gallery I used to work with had closed. So it was also a matter of finding a new gallery to show the, to show the work. Mm. Um, so I, did a, I just did a show in um, Litchfield, Connecticut. And that was of all the, um, uh, that was called The Matter at Hand. And that I had a series of 10 watercolors based on the home of a woman uh, affected by hoarding disorder. So there was that on one side of the room, and on the other side of the room was a piece that was about my compulsion for arranging objects on a desk, and that was a uh, piece. And then I have another show coming up in the fall at Roanoke College. That's going to be a very large show, so I have to start planning that one out, but I think that's going to be a combination as well of both sides of the coin. And then after that, I'm going to do a show in um, Long Island City with a, a new gallery that just opened called uh, Studio Artigo. We'll see. They have a beautiful space, and I think they want to also do a combination. So I think the show there, the one at Roanoke, the title is um, All the Things, or The Things We Are, and then the one at Studio Artigo is The Thing About Things. So it's also been like coming up with all these titles and trying to figure out how to sort of say the same thing over and over again. The, the gallery that closed, was that because of the pandemic? Uh, it was before the, the oh, pandemic. Before the yeah, pandemic. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, it's hard running yeah. galleries. There are a lot of galleries in New York that open and close. Um, yeah, it's a tough business. Yeah. I, uh... For the artists and the dealers, you know. <laughs> I first got introduced to the gallery scene in 2016, and mm-hmm. I've always been intrigued by it. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I made a film in the summer of 2016 called Death and Life, which was an art house. I'm not going to say it's an adapt- adaptation because I didn't have the rights to it, yes. but it's an art house interpretation of uh, the Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. Okay, no, I don't know it. Uh, it's ba- it's basically a book from the 1960s where she. This woman named Jane Jacobs uh, basically was criticizing the super blocks where all the public housing projects are built. Oh, yeah. And why they're bad for neighborhoods. And, Interesting. Uh, I'm like, I, I want to turn that into an art house film. Yeah. Uh, and so I took all her philosophies and I made this narrative around it. And it's, a, it's, it's about this artist who sees patterns and, and hmm. he documents patterns and he in- integrates it into his artwork and then he starts to see that the pattern of the city isn't mm-hmm. congruent to creativity and like yeah. in, a, in a city of artists that doesn't make sense yeah 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 and um oh interesting i brought it up because that making of that film introduced me to the gallery scene in new york mm-hmm. and how like every thursday night like a new thing would open and yeah yeah, yeah. And the film we called it the thursday night hustle yeah and only <laughs> new york artists knew what that meant yeah 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 that's <laughs> funny yeah, and that and my daughter is also an artist, and she um, she went to uh, the Cooper Union for for school. And that freshman year uh, in September, I said to her, I sent her a text and said, "Hey, you know what? Tonight's the opening night of all the galleries. Do you want to go?" And she said, "Oh yeah, totally. I'll meet you over there." And she brought four of the her classmates, friends that she had made, and all of them were from uh, not from New York. And when they saw the scene in Chelsea, 
um, with the the thousands of people walking around, going in and out of art. They were just they were ignited by it. They thought it was so fantastic. They they said this is the whole reason we came to New York, you know, because and somebody once said to me, uh, uh, there I thought it was a cool quote was um, there are two kinds of people in New York. There are people who make art and people who buy art. And I think by buy art, they just mean people who support the arts, you know, who are interested in culture and things like that. And I think it's true because I have a lot of friends who are artists, but I also have a lot of friends who aren't artists. But when we have, you know, sitting around at a dinner table or something at a dinner party, those people who aren't artists are just as interesting and interested in the conversations about art and have that kind of vocabulary, you know? And so I think it's, you know, one, one you know, fuels the other. And it's great. That's why I love being in New York. Yeah, well, I always thought that uh, the, the, uh, the, I guess the observers are mm-hmm. equally as important. Oh, absolutely. Uh, otherwise, like, like you said before, like if the universe is observed into existence, mm-hmm. does the art exist? <laughs> does it exist if nobody sees it? It's like a tree fall in the forest. Yeah, um, yeah well, I think Gertrude Stein said, great art can't exist without great audiences, you know? And it's true, you yeah. know? And well, that's, I think as an artist, that's all you really want. That's the most satisfying part, is when people come and look at your work, you know? Yeah. It's, the, it's like a filmmaker, you know, you want to, or a playwright, when you show is put on, you know, or your film is, is, you know, projected in a theater. That's the most satisfying part. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know? Because the, the, the opposite side of that is apathy, mm-hmm. which can be soul-destroying. Yes, right, <laughs> absolutely. But I, I, I like the... Um, tr- I have my own version of the tree falling in the forest, and this will definitely shed light on my personality. Yeah. It's is a house haunted if there's nobody there to be spooked. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. There's a good book uh, that. What, what's the guy's name? Robert Lanza, and it's called Biocentrism. Is the name of the book. I read it a while ago, but. You know, he's he's really talking uh, uh, this concept of biocentricity, where everything is sort of there for you. You know, and he taught one of the example, like he talks, he brings up the tree in the forest, but then he also talks about perception and how you can have two people standing next to each other on a hill, and there it has just rained, and there's a rainbow, but because of the slight diff- distance, the two feet or whatever, and the angle they're standing at, one might see it and one might not see it. And so to one, it's real, and to the other, it's not real. Yeah. You know? And, it, and it's just... Um, that's a good book, actually. I really like that book. I like that concept. That's something I've been playing with, um, <clears throat> is this idea that uh, we're, we're given, I guess, by the universe, what we need in a moment. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm writing this series of novels. Um, I'm not, I won't go into what it's about because it's very science fiction-y and nerdy, but uh, <laughs> each one is focused on a different character. So right now I'm introducing this, um, the villain, what will end up being the villain of this series. And there's a moment where he's talking with his best friend, who's just a sub-character. And he's like talking about how like everything that exists, exists for me. Mm. And it won't exist for you unless 
it has to be. And of course, yeah. there's another book with that character in it where everything is presented for him. And yeah. uh, it's just, it's that's interesting. Very meta. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Well, then that you know that, but then you can get into the ideas of like the oneness of everything, right? With the and I think that you know because how should I say it? So the thing is, is that if it's like it, one of the arguments a lot of people make, I think about like this idea of um, uh, everything being one is that they they see you as separate from them, right? And 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 so there's this. It's a difficult thing to understand. And I think that the the way Buddhists talk about these ideas of attachments, right, and the things we believe in, and the things we surround ourselves with, and all the ways that we def- we define who we are, right. I like salt. I don't like salt. You know, I'm religious. I'm an atheist. Whatever. You know, all of these things. And if you can strip away all of those those things that you believe are you, but they're actually just beliefs that you're attaching to, and if you strip all of that away, that all you're left with, right, is that oneness, and that that, or that I should say, that beingness, the thing that is um, creates your being. And that that beingness is the same in everyone because once you don't have any of the attachments, it's just that essence. Um, I think that there's truth to that. And so I think that there's, um, even though it's not perceivable, I think that that there's just this, um, it's hard to explain. Um, If everything is one thing, then... You know, uh, this explains why we all see the same thing, right? So, um, you know, if something is, let's both see a ball that's red, you know, well, how come, you know, we both are seeing that, I think, because we're both the same thing. We're still the one thing. We're just perceiving ourselves as separate things, right? Yeah, that makes sense. That goes along the lines of, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of somebody describe the Big Bang in a present tense. We, when you hear about the Big Bang, it's always past tense, but yes. honestly, it's present tense. We're still part of it. We're all part of it. And it's yes, still banging, right. right? It's still banging. Uh, that's a good So if we're part of it, it makes total sense. And all the matter and everything that's, that's around us all came from that one thing. Yeah. So everything is made up of the same stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, if, it's, if it is a bang that's, that's expanding outward like a loaf of bread... And mm-hmm. it's still expanding outward. We're, we're expanding outward. Yes. With it. That's right. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'm losing people yeah. <laughs> with, with all this philosophy, but I'm oh, obsessed yeah, with sorry. this stuff. I'm yeah. obsessed with this stuff. So I am too. That's why I like to make work about it. Yeah. But I bring it back to a very real place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, all of these, these topics definitely inform the way I think. But then I, I bring it back around to the work to be, it's very real and based on real things. So I think it's playing with those ideas, you know. Somebody at the opening um, asked me with the paintings that are painted on the wall, he's, he's like, well, do you, do, does this mean that they have to cut the sheetrock out? <laughs> he, was just, he was sort of teasing me. I and I said, no, no, you just get to paint the rectangle back on the wall. I feel like if... if somebody's investing in art mm-hmm. they should go above and beyond to make sure it's displayed the way the artist intends 
Yes, good. I like you. You know, if the artist <laughs> is alive, at least bring them in to help <laughs> um, display it. Yeah, yeah, makes absolutely. perfect sense to me. Uh, yeah, you know, not every Joe is going to do that because uh, most people don't have the the real estate to do that. But anybody who's coming through here with the intent of buying is going to have the resources to do that. Yes. Absolutely should. Yeah, it's amazing though if you think about how few you know people are buying art. I mean, it's really a small very small percentage of our society who's sustaining all of this art, right? You know, a lot of times you, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and of New York and there were very few people had art on their walls, you know. And even when I visit, um, well, my siblings, they have a lot of my art on their walls, right? But when I go to their friends' homes and stuff, they might have a piece here or a piece there, you know. And I'm always surprised by that because when those people then come to my house which is completely chock full of art right my wife and I decided that we were going to do sort of like a salon style in our apartment and so every wall has you know multiple pieces on it and the first thing people say when they come into our apartment is like wow this apartment's incredible and then my brother-in-law says to me and to them he says well the apartment's okay it's because of all the art that you're getting that reaction and I think that people don't realize how much art can expand their, their daily life, you know? When you walk into a home um, or a space that has a lot of interesting and good art and not decorator art, you know, like this, these abstract things that are just kind of meaningless, but like work that actually is, provokes you in some way, how much that, in, that in, uh, it, it affects your daily life, you know? And even, even in, in the sense if you have people over and it's, you have a dinner party or something like that and people see interesting, you know, really compelling work on the wall, it starts incredible conversations. So, you know, I wish, I mean, I understand that, you know, the, the blue chip galleries, the work is very, very expensive. You know, there are only a few people who can spend, you know, 200 grand on a, on a thing. But when you're talking about work that's under $10,000, you know, if somebody could, you know, if you could spend, you, know, you buy, you know, a $2,000 painting one year or a $4,000 painting one year and then you buy another one the next year, over the years, you will start to accrue a collection of art that's, that's a good, really good art and, you know, and, and filling your environment with, with really thought, interesting thought. So I wish more people would, would go out and look at real art. Well, I think that it's, the fact that a lot of people don't is just a, a result of bad art education. Yes. I mean, yeah. when I first, it, we got connected through Mike Rader, who's mm-hmm. on the podcast in season one. Yes. But when I first interviewed him for the new filmmaker series over at Anthology, yeah. uh, he talked about how they cut him off of art after the second grade or something. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that is like the most common story. And yes. it was probably just watercolors before that. They don't actually teach you art appreciation or tell you how to, you know, train you how to look at art. How to, yes. If you go in, how are you interpreting the space that the art is in? Yeah. And or they'll teach it like to a lesson. Yeah. So you're learning about the Native Americans. Let's all build a Native American thing. Ugh. And I hated that as a kid because yeah. I thought to myself, here's the one class where I can express myself. And now I have to do it through an academic lens of, of this project for the, this writing assignment for this other class. Like, I hated that. So, yeah. you know, and there's a book by, did you ever read Daniel Pink, um, A Whole New Mind? 
where he nope. okay so he talks about the education system and how it was set up in the industrial age and how it was really set up to to get people to sign, kind of sit still for eight hours right and so uh because they that's what they were going to have to do on the assembly line but he talks also about the arts and the education and he coins this this phrase um the new nba is the mfa and he said that because he said that and i think the book came out in 2006 he was saying that the skill sets that have been become that are becoming uh important in america so for example accounting law some of these things are now becoming rote and can be shipped overseas to be done and he said so what's becoming valuable in america is ingenuity invention idea generation and he said the only people who were being trained to think that way are the kids who are in these MFA programs and he said so those are the people who are going to be who you should be looking at to hire and five years later in 2012 we're seeing it, we were seeing evidence of exactly what he was talking about where all of these these uh, jobs are being shipped overseas and there's all these people who are trying to come up with ideas and I think that's because artists are trained to problem solve things in multiple ways you know like how can you how can you fix this oh you can do it like this you could do it like this you could do it like this you could do it like that like i wish that the sats had that like i always wish that the sats had a section that tested creativity because you know you can have math and you can have english but there was nothing in there that that spoke to the side of the brain because i think if you did that if you were able to put something in there that tested creativity all of a sudden all of these kids who scored 1600 on their SATs their scores would drop because they're just using one part of their brain to answer all of those questions there it's like memorization and pro, and and there it doesn't require creative thinking um, but well, that, that's a whole other story that was always my problem with math like math is absolutely my weakest subject mm-hmm. because it was always about memorizing timetables memorizing um, all of these strange ways of formulas and things formula like that. Yeah, yeah all these strange ways of just processing all this and then my question was always well why does it work <laughs> if you can tell me why it works, I don't need to memorize timetables because I can just figure it out. Yes, if right. I understand it, but nobody knew why it worked because I think were it's all so abstract. You know, yeah, yeah. math is so abstract. Um, and I actually ended up, and somehow we perceive it as real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people think of math as real. Oh yes, math is real. Really, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a language. Yeah, it's it's as real as a language, and that's about it. But yeah. Um, I was so bad at math going into adulthood that um, I had to go back to school in my 30s. I'm, I'm 40 now. Okay. Yep. In my, my early to mid-30s, I enrolled in undergraduate studies at Empire State College. Okay. And one of the first classes I sprang for was like just college math 101. Okay, cool. And, and there was this German guy who was teaching, and I'm like, I just need you to undo all the damage. <laughs> and... First off, how do I calculate tip without a calculator? Like, yeah. I would like to know that because I didn't even know that. Good. And I ended up getting an A minus in something that was so foreign to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> wonderful. Um, this guy was good, and and that's one of the things that I think more people should do if they're dissatisfied, if they don't, if they felt like they were let down by their education system, is mm-hmm. find a way back to school and find teachers because there are people in. Yes. 
the academia, the higher ed that are great. Yes. got to find them. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know it's not free, and it should be, but no. um, it's worth the money. But there are ways that are more affordable than others as yeah, well. Yeah. Community colleges and things like that. Well, that's where research, good research comes in. Like, one of the things I realize is if nobody's going to Empire State College for creative writing for the most part. Mm-hmm. They're all, you know, a lot of them are cops and firemen and stuff, and they're going because they want to get qualified for a promotion or whatever. Sure. So I'm like, well, they have writing grants, and since nobody thinks of Empire State College as a writing school, I could probably get writing grants. And that's exactly Ooh, what happened. That's great. And I think I paid under five grand in total for wow. an entire undergraduate just because of all the grants that nobody was grabbing up. Yeah, amazing. It's not Yale, but it's near damn yeah. free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's brilliant. That's great. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think for me it wasn't math. I liked math. Because I kind of could, I could get the, the get it, but English for me was the subject that I had a very difficult time with, you know. And I think that I actually, Mike Rayner and I have talked about this. I think actually, I, I don't know for sure, but we were talking about dis- different forms of dyslexia and things. Because one of the things when I was young, I noticed that I had to do was read things over and over. Like I had to read paragraphs three or four times, right? So um, before it would sink in and I would get the, what, it, you know, what I was reading. And I think, but, you know, growing up in the, in the early, in the 70s and the 80s, right? I'm 52, so born in 68. So those, in the 70s, there was no, you know, you, you just work harder. There was no idea that this, that you could have some sort of a learning thing. And, and now if I, you know, if I, if I saw that, like with my daughter, I think she, you know, was having um, to also read things multiple times. And so we would just make sure she had enough time to do it, you know, and that, and then resolved itself, you know, over time, I think there's, there was no pressure the way I felt this pressure, you know? Yeah. Well, I think one of the benefits to this era is people are paying more attention to education. Yeah. Um, like what, what, what happened with my nephew, mm-hmm. um, them identifying that. Uh, yeah. And he's a straight A student. That's amazing. So it's just like the That's fact amazing. that they can just let somebody leave a class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they identified a strength. Yeah. Need more of that. It's all about how you teach it, you know. Like, I think, um, you know, with the writing for me, I think for writing was so tough for me as a kid because I realized that at a very young age I never was taught really how to write. Like, they taught you grammar, but they didn't teach you like. The, the basics of how you would form... Like, I, I think it, was in, it wasn't until 11th grade that my um, teacher in 11th grade basically said, oh, here's how you make an outline, right? For writing an essay. What? I saw that. I was, it just this makes it so easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that oh, was... so I have this, this thought... Then I have these sections, and within those sections, I have the points to, to provide the, the evidence for each of those sections. Mm-hmm. How f- 
freaking and I why I didn't I learn that in third grade? Yeah, I didn't know that until I was applying for college the first time around. And my mm-hmm. girlfriend who went to private school and you know, she went to one of the schools that actually tells you how to write things off in your taxes. Yeah. My school didn't even touch taxes. <laughs> I'm like, you're gonna be a blue collar union worker. I'm like, fuck no, told me told, show me how to write off business expenses. Yes, right. Uh, but anyway, that's a whole other uh, grievance. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's just like, all right, so your opening paragraph should have your thesis statement, which is going to be like what this is about. And then you're going to have all your supporting, and then you're going to wrap yeah. it up with re- just reword your thesis statement. I'm like, that's it? I'm like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> What's a thesis statement? Yeah. So then she went in explaining what a thesis statement was. Yeah. But then after that, I was tutoring people. Amazing. In my first term there, yeah. I was tutoring people on how to pro- write an essay. And these kids were coming back to me with like yeah. A's. I'm Amazing. Like, it's just and it's, it's one of those is. things you don't know until you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why education is so important, you know. I have a friend um, who teaches in, uh, at, or was teaching at a public high school in Queens that was sort of an art-centric high school. So he brought me in because, you know, in addition to the art, I, was, I also had worked in advertising. So as an art director and a creative director and all that. So I kind of had these two careers going simultaneously and I kind of kept them quiet from one another. And um, so I did my first presentation was on the advertising. And there was this kid in the class who was like heckling me the whole time. And then all of a sudden I put up some some images of a uh, wild posting campaign that I had done for the New York Knicks because that was one of my clients was the Knicks and the Rangers and the Yankees, right? And so I put up these posters of the Knicks and the kid, the the heckler in the class was like, all of a sudden something clicked and he said, wait, you made those? And I said, well, I didn't make them myself, but, you know, I came up with the idea, and then we hired a printer, we hired an illustrator to do the illustrations, and this is advertising. And he's like, wait, this is a job? And I was like, yes, that's what I'm, I'm sort of talking about. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe that's the one kid that I reached that day, actually, who's going to say, holy crap, this is a real thing I can do. And for me, it was my, in my senior year of high school, um... My art teacher brought in friends of his who were all in different industries in, in the visual arts, right? So one was a, an illustrator, one was a graphic designer, uh, one was a fine artist, and one was an advertising guy. And my parents' philosophy was, if you're going to art school, we want you to major in something you can get a job in, right? So I had been looking. So really, like a, a complete uh, art school, like a, you know... Um, like Cooper Union or something, that wouldn't have worked. But so I started looking at university programs, BFA programs, and that's how I ended up at Syracuse. But the guy who came in from advertising did this presentation, and I was like, this is cool because this is conceptual. He's coming up with ideas, and then he's making them into things, right? So I thought, that's great. And I thought, there, it, you don't know until you know. I didn't know this was a job. So I think it's great to go out and talk to kids about, you know, these paths because, especially creative kids. I mean, there's so many jobs. I hate it when people say, oh, um, oh, my kid, my kid wants to go to art school, you know, and they're never going to get a job. Are you kidding me? The other thing that Daniel Pink says in his book is he says, look around you. He said, everything you're looking at is a design decision, right? Yeah. Think of how many jobs, right? 
furniture design, industrial design, interior design, architecture, fine art, all of it. Everything that's not organic is basically a design decision. And there's somebody behind that, and that's a job. So I think people... I think people are ignorant about what kinds of jobs you can get as a creative person. And they also, and they also don't even think about their entertainment, right? My son wanted to be a filmmaker. I was like, absolutely. You know, it's a whole industry. It's a huge industry. Everyone thinks about it like you want to be Van Gogh or you want to be, you know, Steven Spielberg. Okay, yes, the chances of that you know, are, are smaller. But if you work hard, maybe it'll happen. But, and so, so they dispel it. They say, oh, you know, the movie business, you know, nobody ever makes it in that business. That's not true, first of all. And secondly, would you ever say that to a kid who says, I want to be a neuroscientist? There are probably a few, or a neurosurgeon, let's say. There are probably a handful of incredible neurosurgeons in, in the United States. I would, I would say that it's probably harder to become a neurosurgeon simply because mm-hmm. the competition to get residencies are yeah. actually higher than it is to get into a gallery. I believe it. But you would never discourage that kid. Right. And the reality is, is if the people realized how much of their life was built around the arts, from the things they read to the things they watch to the things they listen to... They take it for granted. Yeah. I, wish, I wish we could have a day that's a, um, like an arts, to, to show people how much they take it for granted. It would be like a, like a turn it off day, right? Where all the arts related industries would just shut down just for one day, where you couldn't stream, you couldn't listen to music, you couldn't read your Kindle. I think people would, would be shocked at how much well, arts in their started- lives. We started feeling that a little bit at the start of the pandemic. Yes. When we couldn't get new films. Yeah. And, you know, for all the flack Marvel gets, mm-hmm. a lot of people started missing Marvel. Yeah. Missing, they started missing going to just that every Those month. Every films. month there was a new, new movie and you could depend on it if you wanted to get away. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, no, one of the things that I, I found myself trying to explain to somebody back, back in my hometown in Maine... They're like, I don't understand. Are you an author? Are you a filmmaker? Are you a podcaster? Like, there are like all these professions that, and and, and when are you going to get a real job? That's like, people in my hometown are obsessed with that term, real job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what is a real job? Yeah, exactly. That when you, like, when you feel suicidal because you're so depressed because you're doing something day in and day out that you can't stand. Well, you know, is that what, a real job? If I showed them some of my stubs, they would hate me because they would be proven wrong simply by throwing that term at me. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially prior to the pandemic when things were, were going really well. Um, I don't have a real job? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had people say that to me. Yeah. Well, some of us have real job. You know, I was out at a thing and, and uh, I said... Uh, Hey, you know, it was only like 10 o'clock. It wasn't even that late. Oh, we're going to all go back to so-and-so's house after the band finishes playing. Do you want to come? Oh, no, I can't because some of us have real jobs. Ugh. They, <laughs> yeah, they need, oh, really? they need uh, an awakening. But yeah. um, the reason I brought it up, though, was because I, I was explaining to somebody that my job isn't podcasting. My job isn't making and selling books. My job isn't making and selling films for to be streamed my job is 
to maintain a brand where all of that is just an asset to one another. So Mm -hmm. if I drop the podcast, I lose an asset. If I drop, Mm -hmm. stop publishing books, I lose an asset. If I stop making films, I lose an asset. Yeah. Um, And, and, and I try, it's really hard to explain to people who don't get it because everybody's so trained in the work of mentality. Whereas I, have always looked at life as an entrepreneur. Yes, right. And so Which like, is what most creative people are. Oh, absolutely. Entrepreneurial. One of the things I, I, I'm telling anybody who says, I want to make films, I want to create art, I want to write books, I'm like, go to business school. Yeah. Or at least take a couple classes. I don't care. Mm-hmm. That's but right. Treat it like an entrepreneur yeah. endeavor. And don't just focus on your craft. Focus on the business side of it. And yes. then focus on other things, too. Well, but, you know, to speak to that point, I think it's interesting how a lot of art schools, um, you know, some of them are starting to introduce these programs. But I was thinking, you know, they should have a class that's called something. Because most art-related people, kids who are creative, don't want to take a business class. So you think, how can you get them into the class? So I was thinking you could do a class that would be titled something like Artist as Entrepreneur, right? Yes. And how to set up your studio, your business, you know, so you never have to work for the man. But you need to know basic things like how to set up your books, how to create an LLC, you know, how do you handle your taxes, expenses, things like that. Really, really basic stuff. That's all they need to know. Because, you know, probably like 99% of kids who are in art school aren't going to go into the visual arts, right? And they'll end up as a graphic designer or a filmmaker or, you know, whatever, whatever you know, job, so to speak, that they can get, you know, because you know, being a painter or a sculptor is a very difficult. So you might end up becoming a welder or starting a welding business. Um, but how do you run your business? And it's just very basic things. And I think that's a, that's a very good point. And... Um, something that should be introduced into all uh, art schools. It's not about being a businessman. It's about knowing how to manage your studio. Yeah. It's, it's having a healthy, well-rounded practice where all of that is just intertwined and yeah. second nature. But also the way I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine, an artist I met when I was in residence at Mass Mocha, and he's, um, we were talking about um, professionalism. And how, you know, if you want to be a writer, you need to write. If you want to be a painter, you have to paint, right? You can't just say, oh, I want to be a, I want to be a painter. I want to be an, a visual artist. You know, I want to have a show. Okay, if you want to have a show, then you got to make the work for the show, right? So you can't sit there and just think these, these abstract thoughts about how you want to be the thing. You actually have to do the work, right? And, um, but there was a book called The, the War of Art, Oh, I love that book. Yeah, but he talks about, I forget, was it, who wrote that, Pressfield? Pressfield, yes, Stephen Pressfield. Yeah, and he talks about how you need to take your artistic practice as seriously as as though it's a profession, right? And I mean, I have have a very sort of rigorous um, um, daily practice, right? I get up pretty early. I get up usually around like six. I, I get a cup of coffee, I check my email, and then I'll do like a meditation, then I'll go for a run, then I'll have breakfast, and then I head to my studio, and I get to my studio, you know, uh, 9 o'clock, and then I work through the day, I will take a you know, half hour for lunch maybe, and that's when I check 
the emails, respond to any emails I need to, then I get back to painting, and then I get home, you know, and then I leave my studio at six or seven o'clock, get home, hang out with my wife, have dinner, watch, you know, stream something or read or whatever it is, um, and go to bed by like 10, 10.30. Now, when I was young, I never did that. But I was definitely a night owl type of person. But I have found sticking to this schedule has made my productivity soar through the roof. And, and I don't mean productivity in a, in a, you know, a you know, treadmill kind of way. Like, I mean, I just feel like sharper, you know? I feel like I have more energy because I'm 52, right? So one of the things I'm noticing <laughs> as I'm getting into my 50s is my energy was kind of starting to drop. Yeah. So that's why I started picking up, you know, running it. Uh, you know, I don't run every day anymore, but I run every other day. But um, I started doing that and, and the meditation also, you know. Um, it just... But it's all there to... to when I get to my studio, I'm, I, I think of it as a, my job, right? Um, and, I, and I focus on it that way. Yeah, that's, the, that's a healthy way to go about it. Uh, earlier, this, in, in the beginning of the, this particular podcast season, I, uh, I actually had an episode, The Art of Routine, uh -huh. where uh, this doctor who talks about routine uh, as just important to creative people yeah uh, and he talks about how like the, the 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 even rock stars who you would think are the least routine based are routine based they're very they oh, talk yeah. about like he interviewed the rolling stones he's like yes. i couldn't believe how routine they were yeah like it 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 it, it it fuels your um flow yeah you know and i'll find like sometimes if i the one thing you know the pandemic <laughs> was not going out, right, being at home, and I kind of loved that. Like, you know, and I, I know I'm supposed to have a social life, <laughs> but, you know, I think it was get, before the pandemic, it was too much. I was going out too many nights, like seeing friends or going out to dinner or whatever it was. And it wasn't that I was having super late nights, but this, I think, was also... So I said to my wife after the pandemic, I said, let's limit it to two nights a week. That's it. Because any more than that, I definitely notice it taking its toll on me, physically and psychologically. You know, if I don't get sleep, is a huge part of it too. Do you get a, Do you get a lot of sleep? Do you get yeah, enough sleep? I get enough sleep. Do you get between seven and nine hours? That's what they recommend. Yeah. Okay, that's good. My ideal schedule is actually to go to bed at ten and wake up at five. Sometimes I'll wake yeah. up at four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's when I'm most creative. Mm-hmm. And I won't turn on the Wi-Fi. I'll just write. Good for you. That's um, great. And it's free write. There's no editing. Because yeah. editing is Good. a different mindset. Yes. Uh, Smart. You know, some days I'll do a paragraph. Mm -hmm. Some days I'll do multiple pages. Yeah, great. And then I'll go and have breakfast. And then by the time my girlfriend gets up, yeah. I'm finding my way out the door. Because she works from home at, for a PR company. So she's always on these Zoom calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just don't want to hear that stuff. So no. I, I vacate and then I'll go hiking and then and maybe I'll do some grocery shopping. But by the time I come back, uh, we'll hang out for a little bit while I'm drawing because I'm also working on a graphic novel. Great. And so working on a graphic novel and I can do hanging out with her. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I was writing, I wouldn't be able to do no, that. No, because you need total concentration for that. Yeah. yeah. 
less distraction. Yeah. yeah. And I As don't do even you, have you done uh, some art, any artist residencies yet? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, I have to say. I yeah, really I've, I've looked into some writing residencies, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, some of them were pretty expensive, mm -hmm. and uh, so although they had financial programs, I didn't yes. qualify for any of them. Sure. So. Well, you should look into some of the ones that are fully funded. Yeah. And you apply, and then everything is, is uh, given to you. I mean, that, make, that makes them more competitive, but... You know, you, you got to be in it to win it. Yeah. And, um, but I'll tell you, you know, like I just did one in Wyoming at a place called U Cross, right? And it was 10 artists, some writers, choreographer, musicians. And uh, it was, I find that those, the time in residence is so productive because you have absolutely no distractions. And everyone is up at six in the morning and everyone's in their studios by eight and thirty and everyone's busting it until you know six o'clock at night and then everyone comes back has dinner that's when we have time to chat and sort of um just have great discourse about all things art related and then get to bed by like 10 o'clock and do it again and it is just talk about routine it is a very rigorous routine by choice, you know, it's not that you're required to, to, to be that way, but that, and not everybody's like that, but the majority of the people are, and it's, it's incredible when you have a community of artists like that, all doing the same thing like that, yeah. it just ramps up your, your, you know, productivity in a way, and focus, really focus. Yeah, I think that, that would be great, um, it sounds like paradise, to be honest, I have a friend who, who goes to art residencies, um, for she, it's it's like mixed media, so she'll go for writing, but mm. there'll be painters there and mixed media artists. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, and they'll give her a room like this, and she'll take all of her pages of her manuscript and put them up on the wall. Oh yeah. So you can just walk around, and by the yeah. time you get around, you've read a whole novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how she edits. That's yeah. At one of the residencies I was at, the the very first one was in Virginia. It was called Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and there was twenty nine artists, and. Um, but composers, writers, whatever, and so and visual artists. So I had gone into one of the writer studios, and all these papers were up on the wall. And I thought, well, what's what's going on? And she said, oh, this is how I I uh, work on my books. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I print them out, um, and then I put them up. And I said, so I can edit it. And I thought, well, why don't you just do that on the computer? She said, because there's something about physically seeing it in mm -hmm. front of me that I can make these connections. And so she said, I can take one, I can see this piece over here, and I said, oh, you know what, this has to go in over here. And, she's, and then I went into all the other writer studios, and they all had their systems, whether it was post-it notes on the floor or things, to, and all the writer studios at that residency have cork walls or magnetic walls so that these writers, and every residency I've been at since where there are writers, same kind of thing. Yeah, that's something that uh, I learned about this year, actually, mm -hmm. was they'll have, sometimes it's a cork and a magnetic thing that yeah. also functions as a whiteboard, and they'll just put images up, yeah. or they'll tack like old newspaper clippings, and they're just kind of finding the vibe of their novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. like, I've never heard of that, but yeah. that's really cool. I it's amazing, you know? And I think, again, you're seeing it real. You're seeing it physically, you know, and it changes the way you perceive it. Yeah.
you know? Yeah, I think it makes a big difference uh, in the final product, too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, so this piece is titled Self-Portrait Number 1, and it is made up of 60 individual paintings, which are made with uh, oil paint on mylar, which is then adhered to a steel plate. And behind the plate, recessed into the wall, are four magnets to hold up each plate. And so the, the piece has um, a total of 240 magnets behind there. It was a, it was a trick to uh, install this work and to make sure everything was level and as perfect as I could. Um, this piece is based on my um, studio shelves. And so the reason I call it self-portrait is because it is a... Uh, a portrait of me through all of my things. So, and there are different sections, you know, so you have the books and all of that, which might represent sort of my mind, my thinking, and you have these boxes that have photographs and, and uh, postcards from my shows and things like that. These binders, these have, you know, um, uh, old historical photographs from my family and my, the, my, uh, ancestors, and then up here, all of these binders are uh, my inventory, so I keep track of everything I make, and after I uh, make a piece, I'll put it into a database on my computer, um, and the, each, each, uh, each uh, page in the database shows the work, the dimensions, the medium, and it shows it's been in, if the piece is sold, who it's sold to, that way I've, I've kind of been keeping track of everything uh, <clears throat> that I've made, and uh, then obviously these are my sketchbooks, and, my, and then moving into some more thinking, and then into my um, into my some some of the supplies, the ones that I don't use frequently, I keep on these shelves. But um, I wanted to sort of play. There's an artist named Donald Judd who uh, I'm, I'm very inspired by. He's a minimalist, and he does a lot of. Uh, repetitive, multiple types of sculptures, and so this is where I sort of introduced the idea of this rectangle being recessed into the wall, sort of to reference Donald Judd. And the palette being kind of a muted palette was inspired by an artist named um, Morandi, who only painted still lives, and he used a very beautiful muted palette, and it just created this uh, lovely sensibility to the object. So I was sort of thinking about him as well while I was working on the piece. This piece is called Juliet, number one, and you can see that this, this is, I think, the only piece you have, the only piece in the show that has multiple colors painted on the wall, um, inspired by the, the uh, actual environment in which, you know, the, the, the vent was located. This is another one called Amy, number one, and like I had mentioned earlier, all of these pieces are based on... Um, other people's environments, and so they're titled after the name of that person, um, because I feel like with these works that um, uh, I'm kind of, uh, obviously they're sort of inspired by still life, but they're also portraiture, and in a sense, like a portrait of the person's mind. And I'll just show you what the, the panels are. So they are oil on linen over panel, and I use a PVC panel. You can see here. So I stretch the linen, I glue the linen to the panel, and then I, I create a little keyhole. 
And then I, in, in the diagrams I explained to you earlier, it shows you the exact location for the nails. And then that way, it will create, um, it'll help you create the exact dimensions here. These are like the, the measurements I was telling you about, you know, from here to here, from here to here. So this one block is one piece, even though it's two separate panels? This is one piece right here, yes. Great. And this is the creating that imaginary boundary that I was telling you about. So in a weird way, um, I'm taking one environment, another environment from someplace else, and I'm bringing it into your environment. So it's sort of this weird thing. Like if you were to hang this in your home, you're kind of combining somebody else's environment with your, within yours, creating a, a strange disruption in reality, I think. And then this piece is called Syria. And this one is interesting because it has uh, three different level panels, three quarter, half inch, and one quarter inch. So if you come around on this one, you'll be able to see it's got a very interesting depth over there of the three different panels. Oh, yeah. You know, and these works are sort of um, building on the, a school of minimalism, and but it's sort of combining this, this you know, thinking, this minimalist thinking with representational painting. So it's kind of an odd combination to put together. All right, Richard, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Where can people go to see this show? Okay, so the show, the current show is called As It Should Be. It's at Bravenly Programs, which is in Chelsea at 526 West 26th Street in Suite 211. And the gallery is open Wednesday through Saturday uh, from noon to 5. And people can also uh, see my work on my website, which is richardpascarelli.com, or uh, follow me on Instagram at richardpascarelli. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.